weeknights from 6 on 2FM. Thanks to the two Johnnies. It's Tuesday the 7th of February and this is Game On. Coming up today, Mark Langdon makes sense of the charges facing Man City as their biggest rivals want them handed the biggest punishment. In rugby, we'll hear from James Lowe on that 86-metre try in Wales and the French challenge ahead. Plus, Keen Tracy reviews Scotland's Calcutta, uh, Calcutta Cup win even and France's Rob Wobble in Rome. Ruby's Wobble. Meanwhile... <laughs> Meanwhile in golf, we've Greg Allen on the hearings between the DP World Tour and Live Golf Players. And I'll get Ruby's thoughts on a busy news day in racing. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at GameOn2FM. Game On on 2FM. Welcome along. Keen Hi, Tracy's Marie. with us. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Before we get on to the racing, I want to uh, get your views on the Republic of Ireland uh, women's team playing in Tala against France before they head off to the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. They can't play in the Viva Stadium. There's been some scheduled um, relaying of the ground or something along those lines. Jonathan Hill, the CEO of the FAI, said they did explore the possibility of hosting the game in the Viva Stadium. Um, it wasn't available. Um, pitch redevelopment work is what he said. Um, so the team are hoping to sell out Tala Stadium. I think it's going to be around 10,000 uh, when that comes around, when that time comes around. Do you think, Ruby, they would have sold... No, I, don't, I think selling out the Aviva would be a bit much, but do you think that they could have maybe sold 20,000 for the Aviva? I'd say they would, Marie, when you think about it. Um, it's a good news story. Um, I would imagine you would have attracted a lot of families, uh, a lot of younger people. I think the whole bottom half of the Aviva, Aviva even could have been filled. Uh, there's no doubt about that, but can't really play a match without a pitch, can you? No, but you can't change your scheduled redevelopment if you really want to. I yes, really we need to look in really need to look into that a little bit more to see exactly mm-hmm. what the relay in the pitch for and what the schedule is further on for, for the men I'd say Ruby. <laughs> yeah, you can make that case if you want, but I'd imagine a scheduling Yeah. You'd bring the girls though, wouldn't you? You'd bring them to Salah. I would have, yeah. You I would have yeah. if you if you can get tickets. You get a ticket. I'd say ten thousand might be just that easy. But uh, yeah, I would have and like they're heading to a World Cup and mm. I mean, it's an incredible news story, yeah. yeah. maybe you could have look, I'm not trying to, to belittle mm. it, but I'd imagine if you are I'm not offending you Viva. Hell, hell, I'm one of those people that's against selling the selling drink during during matches in the Aviva. I don't agree with that ruling they have, but I'd imagine those sort of plans are made plenty far in advance. Yeah, I think um I think that sometimes when it women's sport there is a lot of hype around it but people actually getting out and supporting it isn't as um, forthcoming as we would think when, when we kind of scratch the surface a little bit and drill down. I think a really good example is looking at All-Ireland Finals. You could have a big push and have record crowds in Crow Park for the ladies' football final, but then you look at a semi-final and you might only have a few hundred at it. Now, I did see Meath play yesterday and they had a, a great crowd there. They're all Ireland champions. You would expect as much. But even when the Republic of Ireland women's team played in Tallis Stadium, there was a huge amount of disappointment um, in some of their qualifiers that people didn't show up. So they were buying tickets and they wanted to be seen probably to be buying tickets, but actually following through on the support wasn't always there. And that's something as well we've spoken about Katie Taylor this week. And I would definitely question whether or not we would get a, a sold out Crow Park if it came to it. Um, I just don't think we're quite we're quite there yet when it comes to support because I don't think, although 
we are seeing a lot more women's sport. I don't think the fans are there as much yet. I do think they will in time, but like you'd see it, Keen, with the rugby as well. Um, attendances aren't always great. They are if there's a big push, but getting fans in consistently does seem to be a problem. Yeah, and I suppose in with regard to the women's soccer team, you'd have to say like, if not now, when? when? Because like <laughs> yeah. this is like the bandwagon isn't going to get any greater than it is now qualifying for a World Cup. But uh, yeah, I think you make a good point. Um, I think, you know, if they went to the Aviva Stadium and I don't know, you, you mentioned 20,000, but if they got 20,000 there, like optically, it wouldn't look great. Now, mm. I don't know if the players would mind that, but like if the Aviva Stadium is less than half full, it can be a very hollow and empty kind of place. So while it would be brilliant to, to get there and I'm sure they'd love a chance to, to play there representing their country um, I think we've seen it kind of in women's rugby as well they moved to Donnybrook I know now they've changed in the last couple of years they've moved around up to Belfast mm-hmm. and things but like I mean I was at the I think it was Ireland Scotland up in Belfast at the end of la- the end of Six Nations last season and the crowd wasn't great there at all but when they moved it to Donnybrook it felt like they had a home it, the stands were full there was a great family atmosphere so maybe they could the women's soccer team can make Tala kind of the same but um, I just think if you have it with 20,000 at the Aviva like if you're watching it on TV and stuff I mean that might not be great it might be strange for the players but on a human level it's really disappointing because like I said the bandwagon isn't going to get any greater mm-hmm. than it is now for them But I don't know if that point is right either Keen. When Marie could you have envisaged players women's in the WSL the transfer fees have grown now to a half a million is this not just going one direction? Yeah, no, I bigger and yeah. better and further on. Yeah, I agree, Ruby, and I just think it takes time, and we're not quite there yet. Um, but in time, like even when Chelsea and Arsenal were playing a few weeks ago, there was loads of people, the women's team, I knew that were heading over to watch it, going over to England for the weekend to watch a women's WSL game, which I'd never seen before. You see with traditionally with men heading over to watch Liverpool, Manchester United. So it is all moving in the right direction. I guess I would have just loved... I guess you're disappointed. I'm That's disappointed what I'm, get, I'm getting out of this. You're disappointed, but I think it's going one in direction. Yeah, I the, see the half full, you see the half empty. The Barcelona, you know, Barcelona played and, and they sold out the. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, was it? I don't know. Can't remember whether it was uh, they played against Real Madrid and um, whether it was the Camp Nou or what they sold out. But it was, they, yeah. yeah, they yeah, it was incredible. Now they had the tickets really cheap, and I'm sure they gave them to yeah. little girls and boys all over the country and and did, uh, and and put out the tickets probably for half nothing. But I'd love to have seen something like that where every girls soccer team around the country got uh, a load of tickets and they could just head up on the bus and fill it out and just even to just get the girls used to playing in front of such a big crowd because they're going to be playing again in front of 82,000 in a few weeks after that but that's the the point isn't it the fact that they've moved the World Cup game Mm -hmm. to an enormous stadium like 82,000 people like that shows a demand that's there now I know it's a World Cup game but I mean the Irish people love nothing more than getting behind their own so it is really disappointing that they won't get the send off they probably deserve but I still think they can make Tala yeah 10,000 in Tala is still going to be brilliant yeah Yeah, it'll be a brilliant occasion but but I can understand the disappointment for sure yeah Ruby yeah look I, I agree with you um I agree, but there's more than just Tala. There has to be another stadium somewhere if they think you're going to get a bigger crowd than that. Is yeah. there a sense so that they've made Tala kind of yeah. the, like that's what yeah. I kind of feel like the rugby team tried to do with Donnybrook, and I know it's not the same, but like it it felt like the Tala kind of Tigers. Spe- it's yeah, their, like it's spiritual like their spiritual home. Yeah. I'm sure like people all around the country in Limerick and where would prefer like if they were playing down closer to home. But if you can make somewhere your kind of your spiritual home and then move to the next step, I don't think that's a bad thing either. Yeah, and I think as well if people buy tickets, they should go. 
That's well, silly. yeah, like that was that was really disappointing when that happened. Buying tickets and not showing up. Yeah, so. it was. Um, okay, we should leave it there with that, and uh, we will be covering the women's team a lot over the next few months, and we'll move on to honeysuckle, another woman female. Yeah, look, she's was taken out of the champion hurdle this morning and she is going to run in the mayor's hurdle at Cheltenham. That will be her final swan song. And I suppose, being realistic about it, Marie, she's nine years of age. She has probably regressed a little this year and that is a How more realistic tactic. T- tell me about that because everybody keeps saying that and I know before the weekend you had said that she might get beaten. Like, what's what's happened that she's regressed? Is it age? Is it style? Is it the other horses? Age. Just age. Age, yeah, she's just slowing down a bit. Um, same as players, um, it happens to all horses. And I guess, look, no one really commented on it, but I mean, Willie Mullins, and I would say we therefore ran appreciated the two mile race of the weekend. And when you watched him, you realised mm, he wants further. Okay. Um, he's not quick enough for that anymore. And looking at Honeysuckle, it was statements turn a foot off the home turn that she couldn't keep into him. So, and it look common consensus will be that he will probably struggle to lie into Constitution Hill and therefore when you go through Epitant and a line through Honeysuckle you can think that she's going to struggle as well so look they're, they're putting her into a race where she can probably win she's won it in the past she beat Benny Dejew in it oh, three years ago uh, four years ago whenever it was um, and it would be wonderful if she could go there and win but it'll be no gimme for her either and um, it'll be it'll be great if she could go out on a high but you know, she doesn't kind of so what either. Mm. She she's been brilliant, and um, but this will be the end of honeysuckle. What is it about her that people love? Like you, you've described to me about being at races where everyone has been off their feet, watching her, clapping her in, all that sort of stuff. It was the woman on her back as well. Yeah. That was the big attraction. Okay. It was two women uh, together, Honeysuckle and Rachel Blackmore. And I mean, for Rachel to become the first woman to win a champion hurdle on a mare, it just became such a big story. And you know, they were, she was unbeaten for so long, um, all through her novice campaign. She was unbeaten until this year in Fairy House when Tehupu and Classical Dream beat her. And then she got touched off at Christmas as well, or not at Christmas, last weekend at the Dublin Racing Festival. But there was a pair at a minute. Um, takes two to tango. And it was definitely a case of Rachel and Honeysuckle, not just Honeysuckle alone. And look, it was they were un, they have been unbelievable for the promotion of horse racing and how they drew people to it and even to see the crowd in Leperstown on Sunday when she stumbled at the third last hurdle like the the noise the groan from the crowd that the the almost the fright everybody got mm-hmm. to think she was going to go down but she didn't she came back up and you know even the sense of the atmosphere almost draining as a purist you're looking at statement thinking wow what a performance but the majority of people there wanted Tony Suckle to win and yeah. uh, she's been a great resource Fairy tales, fairy tale endings don't always happen. It just don't happen in sport, do they? No. What about uh, Jack Kennedy? So Gordon Elliott was speaking uh, today, and he says it's going to come down to the wire. Cheltenham is going to come down to the wire. Um, will he get back? Does It'll he push be tight. himself too hard? Like, does he push himself too hard? I don't know. You put because Marie, it's like anything. You push yourself to your absolute limit if you can. Um, he had nine weeks from the time he broke his leg. That's four weeks ago now. He's five weeks today to the first day at Cheltenham. Realistically, he is five weeks to Nace or four weeks and five days to Nace, the final meeting before Punchestown, um, to see if he can ride. And look, he will try his utmost. In muscle memory, he won't have lost too much. Tactically, sometimes jockeys are fresher. I've gone to Cheltenham and had unbelievable Cheltenham festivals off the back of long injuries and only ridden one, two horses. So it, it, there's no doubt he can do it, but um, 
it's just is nine weeks enough a time for the injury he has uh, I think it'll be very tight I, ho- I hope he can do it I never could with that kind of injury be mm-hmm. back in nine weeks but I hope Jack Kennedy can You say it's bored people push themselves to the limit I don't know if I would 100% agree with you on that I think jockeys push themselves to the limit I think if you're in a team scenario like if you're in a Premier League club and you're a footballer or if you're an international rugby player you're 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 going on the advice of a full team whereas Jack Kennedy is probably trying to do it for himself because he's self-employed Exactly. So he is going to push himself to his limit. But there are other stories. I read one of the, was it John Aldridge or Ray Houghton telling a story about passing a fitness test at one of the World Cup matches in, in the USA. I think it was in Atlanta. And Mick McCarthy trying to catch him out and doing, doing their best to get on the team. So, um, or Jack trying to catch him out. But, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of sports players, Marie, mm. you say that they're part of a team. But I, I be, you'd be surprised how many sports people are actually. 100% fit any day they trot out mm-hmm. I would say that for rugby players maybe soccer players you heard Alan talking about it last night and at, at, at the elite level of, of Premier League soccer players maybe they can cop them when they're a fraction off but yeah because you know you hear the language like oh he's got a niggle or in rugby it's like oh he's got a stinger like you never hear that when it comes to jockeys what are they they're just always they're always okay <laughs> yeah of course you are <laughs> like if I you mean, have a niggle you're not sitting out a race no, you're not. You're not sitting out a race. But like the, the other side of that coin is, Marie, you do very little moving on a horse. It's a lot of uh, race and riding horses is a contraction of your muscles, whereas most other sports is an extension. Mm-hmm. So like niggles don't really come into it. So most of the time, it, you might have cracks or a crack here or a fracture there. But if you can, <laughs> you know, just grin and bear it and get your foot in a stable enough position or your keep your hand quiet enough, you'd be surprised what you get away with. Right. Well, I, different breed. Yeah, I can say that. I would never. I would never be doing that. Um, there was another thing I wanted to um, ask you about Ruby as well before we move on to the racing. Um, since you're educating me on everything these days. So Willie Mullins has called for new whip rules to be delayed. What, what's that mean? There's new whip regal rules uh, coming in in the UK. So they're in a, t- a bedding in period at the moment, which came in at the start of January. So the rules, and it relates to a real technicality actually, is to where how high a jockey's hand can come as they're about to use their whip. And a lot of the riders in the UK seem to be breaching the rules. Willie made perfect sense yesterday they're going to bring it in now at the, in the middle of February and it will result in a lot of high profile suspensions by the ch- time Cheltenham comes round because people still won't be used to it you're changing like how do you say it you're not trying to change someone's golf swing or someone's hurling swing you kind of are you're trying to restrict it or how much it's pa- like a tackle pa- technique yeah and a tackle technique or how you kick a ball yeah tackle technique is probably the best way of describing it so you, but you're bringing it in in Willie's eyes two-thirds of the way through a tournament mm-hmm. <laughs> he thinks it should come in at the start of a season so what would be the quieter season for the national hope would be in the summer and as he explained it then for the flat would have been coming in through the winter uh, to give people time to adjust to it so when the higher profile meetings come around everybody is staying within the rules it'd be a bit like introducing in rugby a new tackle law just before the rugby world cup yeah, like, <laughs> things like that happen, but you're right. Like they always get put back to the start of yeah. the, the World Cup cycle, so that you know players and coaches can obviously um, just ha- exactly. Yeah, but yeah, it seems crazy to do it in racing at this stage. And this will be as well, keen a different rule in Ireland to the UK, um, and the UK have gone extreme on it. Um, look, that's their choice; it's their sport. They 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 regulated, but um, 
sometimes just common sense has to come into things. Yeah, because people could miss out and it's such a, an important time. And as we said before, especially when people are self-employed and they need to work. That is true. Very true. So Keen is here, as we have uh, said uh, for since the start of the show. And um, we didn't get to look at the other Six Nations games from the weekend yesterday. We just focused on Ireland with Stephen Ferris. So... We're going to have a look now at the uh, France-Italy game and the England-Scotland game. Um, Keen, I'm going to throw to you to, to start first. Out of everybody's uh, performance, when you look at the games, I guess Italy and Scotland are the, the two big talking points. Who impressed you more, Scotland or Italy? Oh, it's a good question. Uh, you probably have to say Italy, really, wouldn't mm. you? Because, I mean, Scotland have had um, have had a few wins over England over the last few years, so it's perhaps not um, as big as a surprise as it would have been five, six, seven years ago. And when you look at England, obviously, new head coach and things. So uh, I thought Italy were outstanding. Um, France were clearly off it. I think there was a touch of complacency maybe about it going to Rome on a Sunday I mean what's the football equivalent Stoke on a Tuesday <laughs> night even though I'm sure Rome is a lot nicer than Stoke no offence to Stoke but there is an element of that and I just didn't think they looked up for the game I think it'll be interesting you know in terms of the Ireland coaches will they be focusing a lot on that game this week in terms of their analysis I'm not sure Um I don't think they'll be reading too much into it. Um, France conceded 18 penalties, which is unheard of at Test Rugby. I mean, if you go into double figures, you're kind of asking for trouble, as kind of Ireland almost found it out the weekend. I think they were up to 13. But to concede 18 penalties against an Italian team um, was really, really surprising. And I think there's definitely an element of perhaps in France that they're refereed differently than that they, they might be in when they go into the Champions Cup and when they play international rugby. Last weekend, they had uh, Matthew Carley as the ref, an English referee, and they just couldn't get uh, adjusted to him at all. Like we talk about, you know, Ruby there and the the whip laws and stuff, and they just couldn't adjust to the ref in real time. Uh, the breakdown was a mess. Um, if it's as messy against Ireland, and that'll be meat and drink because Ireland feed off um, quick rock balls. So um, it's interesting. Wayne Barnes is going to be the referee this weekend. So another Englishman, you know, obviously cut from the same cloth as Matthew Carley. So I think there's big pressure on France to to adjust. Um, not just before the game but during the game as well it's such an important part of rugby I mean the, the referees and the coaches will have their chat during the week um, but whatever chat they had with Matthew Carley seemed to go in one ear and out the other and like I mean we've spoken so often about the impact that Sean Edwards has had not just in terms of the the defensive side of France but also in terms of their discipline but that was the most penalties they've conceded since he's come in and taken charge of the defence so it, it, it almost felt like you were watching the, the French team of, of old um, but I don't think I'd be reading too much into that mm. performance they're going to be much much better this weekend but from an Italian point of view they were they were exceptional I mean the, so the question is now can they back it up uh, this weekend against England and I think they're at a stage now where they don't really fear teams. They're playing a really attractive brand under Kieran Crowley, who's done an excellent job. He'd done a really good job at Benetton before Benetton Treviso before he'd taken over. Um, and that's the thing. They're playing good rugby as well as, you know, kind of grinding out results. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they had the, the couple of big wins last year against Wales and um, Australia in November. So, um, you know, there's so always so much you know discussion around should Italy be kicked out of the Six Nations and while I've never really agreed with that like more performances like that I think will keep that at bay Keane when I hear Stuart Barnes not Stuart Barnes when I hear that referee is refereeing the Ireland matches Wayne Barnes yeah Wayne Barnes I nearly break out in a rash when I think he's refereeing <laughs> Ireland um, 
would France's indiscipline last weekend turn his attention to them and maybe off us for a change? Yeah, like it, it's interesting because you can imagine Andy Farrell and the coaches um, and the Ireland coaches will be pointing out, I suppose, a lot of the, the areas that France were indisciplined in and so many of them were around the breakdown. And yeah, they will. But I think equally, you know, France are going to be talking to Barnes. And like, you know, just to point out, like in case like anyone doesn't know, like this is pretty normal in rugby where coaches and referees would talk at the start of the week and they, coaches would have a chance to put forward a couple of video clips and point out you know what the opposition team tend to do whether it's at scrum whether it's at lineouts, and referee takes that on board and he kind of gives feedback in terms of what he's looking for as well so um, I think equally France are going to be pointing out you know certain things that Ireland do with the scrum because the scrum is going to be such an area where key area where France are going to look after them go, look to go after them but yeah like uh, Wayne Barnes I mean certainly I think back to the, the Champions Cup final for Leinster against La Rochelle and Leinster weren't too too impressed with him then but I actually think he's a pretty pretty good referee um, if I'm being honest um, but yeah after conceding 18 penalties and Ireland's penalty count wasn't great either mm, especially in the second half yeah, yeah they conceded two in the first half and it rose to 13 by, by the end of full time so um, Ireland have plenty of um, areas to tidy up as well which I think was probably one of the most encouraging things to come out of that game Marie, could you imagine that concession in the GA? Davy Fitz heading off on a Tuesday there to have a chat with the referee. No, I was actually just thinking that, like, I would say it would be carnage. Like, I could imagine a row. Or did you did you do it all together? No, no, okay. no, no. It's yeah, that would be yeah, that would be carnage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, t- good tally. Yeah, like I suppose rugby is so complex, and you're trying not to make it like a total mess. But um, it's interesting because, like, you know. I know like Joe Schmidt used to come in armed with like mm. reams of stuff now you only get a certain length of time like but he used to come in armed reams of stuff and it, it sometimes it can work against you if the ref thinks like you're trying to put pressure on him you know to go and, and get the 50-50s in your favour so I think there's a fine mm-hmm. balancing act and I, I've always got the impression that Eddie Farrell doesn't really well he clearly doesn't sweat the small stuff we've seen that all the way along but I think that would be another element of it I think it'd be very kind of matter of fact going in trying to get your point across and not overthinking yeah, it yeah play your own game exactly yeah Interesting. The Italians attacking game against the French at the weekend. At times they maybe overplayed it, maybe in their own twenty two. But will they post problems to England this weekend? Yeah, I think they probably will. I think their skill level is probably the thing that's been noticed to be improved. Like I said, the style of rugby that they're playing, like Is that coming from Crowley or is it coming from work done at the clubs? Yeah, well, club you'd have to say Zebra are still very, very poor um in the URC. They're not that competitive at all. And that is a problem because, you know, their players are pretty much only coming from Benetton and like having one club. Like it's difficult. I think back to Japan did something similar when they had the Sunwolves in Super Rugby where they just tried to like, you know, mm. hothouse all the players in the club, but it doesn't really transfer. You need to have you think to the Ireland setup, like you've got ideas. Now I know it's Leinster dominated, but you've still got, you know, ideas from Munster. Uh, Connacht and Ulster as well so um, the skill level has like certainly improved and I think I still think you know it's worth mentioning that they're missing their first choice ha- halfbacks and we saw a couple of errors from them you know Tommaso Allen's missed shot at goal was really important but then he had two uh, kicks to touch near the end of the game where I don't know, like it, it, the, the game was clearly in the balance, but he didn't go for broke, but he actually played, I think, too far the other side where he didn't get enough distance um, in terms of finding touch. Uh, I actually thought the second one, they might have t- taken a quick tap penalty because we've seen how kind of common they are now. So Paolo Garbisi is their kind of star out half. He's injured. They're talking about he might be back in round three or round four. You know, you saw the scrum half, Stephen Varney, 
made that error for the opening France try. He's not starting for Gloucester in the Premiership. Tommaso Allen is behind Marcus Smith at Harlequin. So they are missing a couple of key players. But I mean, when you have someone like Ange Capuzzo in the back line, like he is like a proper bona fide superstar. Um, his finish for the Italian try was unbelievable. Uh, like there's a guy, like I think he's like 22 years old and he's playing in Toulouse. Like got a contract in Toulouse. Like that is not easy to do. Mm-hmm. So that just shows how highly he's rated. So they're definitely starting to produce more players. It's really, really encouraging, I think, for Italian rugby as a whole. King, the tap, quick tap penalty. They were all the rage when I was playing as a kid. Mm-hmm. You have moves for them and ways of getting them over the line. Why did they come back in? Why did they stop going to the corner? I think it's probably because opposition lineouts have become so good. So if you you think back to James Ryan's steal when Wales pumped the ball into the corner at the weekend, like that is a like a potentially game defining moment. So I think maybe opposi- our teams were thinking that the opposition lineout has become so good that if you're thrown in the ball, uh, it's too risky. Whereas if you tap and go, um, you're in control, I suppose, of your own destiny to a certain extent, rather than flinging the ball into the lineout and risking it being stolen. So uh, I think it's actually brilliant. Um, I was watching um, my old school St. Munchens uh, put up a clip of a senior cup match lately and they were using like variation yeah. off qu- quick tap penalties. I was at senior cup games in Leinster last week and it's filtering down. It's brilliant. Like it's become, it's it's another set piece and like we've seen Leinster have scored some brilliant, brilliant tries. I thought it was really interesting actually at the weekend Ireland got one but they didn't, they didn't go to any move. Dan Sheehan just put the head down and it ended up leading to a try but I've no doubt that Ireland have some of them in their book when you consider how often Leinster have been rolling them out and you have pretty much uh, you know what is it like 12, 13 Leinster players potentially in the team so um, I'm looking Maybe forward Maybe they're saving it Yeah well I think they are I don't yeah. think there's any doubt I think they and that's really important as well about not showing your hand because there's only so many times that you can do that like not even in a game you know because opposition teams are mm-hmm. going to cop onto it so I'm really looking forward to seeing what Ireland have up their sleeve and this weekend will probably be you know a time where you'd imagine it'll be needed so I've no doubt they've got something up their sleeve Mm, we'll be keeping an eye on that one. So England and Scotland. Scotland are obviously getting a lot of credit for their performance, but the England head coach Steve Borthwick said that they weren't good at anything. So yeah, that was the yeah, starting point. Yeah, when he came back, uh, when he took over from Eddie Jones, he said he, you know, lo- sat down and like Steve Borthwick is like really driven by data and stats and numbers. He has a stats company that like are working specifically with England, uh, and he said, yeah, he looked at everything and it said that they were they were no good. So. Uh, <laughs> kind of easy to say after you've lost to yeah. uh, you know the first game he didn't come out and say that before it so um yeah England were really poor like defensively I thought like they were alarmingly bad I think you know, they've brought in Kevin Sinfield who I mean I don't think there's any anyone more ins- inspirational in, in professional sport at the moment than him and just the the work that he's done for his friend Rob Burrow who's obviously struggling with MND it's just he's an incredible like human being you'd have to say first and foremost but it's going to take time clearly for you know his ideas to be put across there was like holes all over the place in in terms of the defence and I think that's maybe why I'm not getting kind of too carried away with Scotland's victory yet because I think that English defence there's no way Ireland or France would pass up the kind of opportunities that dated. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I see today that England are going to bring in Alad Walters and Richard Richard Wigglesworth. So they're basically just have ramsacked the whole Leicester Tigers backroom team. And I think Alad Walters, you know, um, 
listeners might remember he was with Munster when Rassi Rasmus was in charge and Rassi Rasmus took Alad Walters is a strength and conditioning coach but he took him back uh, to South Africa when he took over the Springboks and lots of the Springboks players will tell you like he was one of the main reasons why they ended up winning the World Cup in 2019 Is he the guy that made them absolutely huge when they had that picture yes, with all their yes, tops off? Yes, that was him yeah okay. he's, he's actually a Welsh, Welsh guy uh, came over he was living in Limerick for a while but he is unbelievably highly rated um, so England are going to get him uh, at the end of the season yeah. And he proved to be, like I said, a real missing piece in the jigsaw for South Africa. So that's one to watch in terms of, I'd imagine, you know, by the time the World Cup comes around, that the fitness level of the English players will probably be on another level, I'd say. Turning to Scotland then, that's the third consecutive win over England. But they haven't won the first two games in the Six Nations since 1996. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the that's the big problem with Scotland, yeah. and that's why I'm kind of reluctant. Like, it, it was an unbelievably good performance by Scotland, like really, really impressive, and they deserve full credit. But like, their problem has been not being able to back it up, and they've obviously got Wales this weekend, and we all we always know that Scotland are a really really good team on their day but unfortunately those days just haven't been put back to back together Ireland are going to play them of course in the World Cup pool so like that adds a kind of another layer of intrigue to it but I think Gregor Townsend was probably rewarded for picking an attacking team um, you know he made a big decision at scrum half starting Ben White instead of Addy Price who was obviously starting for the Lions so uh, that was a big decision he left another Lion Chris Harris on the bench and brought in Hugh Jones who would be far more attack minded than Chris Harris would be and you saw how well he linked up with Sione Tui Paluto for the opening try um, so I think he was rewarded by picking an attacking team and yeah if they can back it up there they're certainly a threat but as Eddie Eddie. Sullivan say I'm not quite drinking the Kool-Aid on them just yet That's fair. but then if you look um, sorry, if you look at how the Scottish teams are performing in the USC URC versus the Welsh teams you can probably see why yeah, like I, I don't. I think Wales will. You'd imagine they'll be better for the game they had last weekend. I think we. I was certainly guilty of it as well, reading too much into you know the Warren Gatlin mm-hmm. factor and Ireland's poor record in Cardiff. Whereas you kind of look at it in you know the cold light of day that this Ireland team are just on another level. They're f- so much further down in their journey. But yeah, like I, I would be reluctant to read too much into the the, the URC uh, form as well as uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh have been playing because you know, like I said, Scotland have struggled to. to to put these back-to-back wins together um, and it'll be interesting I wouldn't imagine Gregor Townsend will be looking to change too much he'd probably just double down on what they've done whereas Wales are probably in a bit of a hole thinking okay we, we have to change something because that just wasn't good enough at all last weekend against Ireland Okay so it is Tuesday already the week's flying by the France game is just around the corner James Lowe was out speaking to the media today he says Ireland have to back their skills and fitness when they welcome France to the Aviva Stadium um, he was also speaking about his try versus Wales let's hear from him Yeah it was um, obviously a fair few phases in I was a bit exposed I guess I didn't really have the normal people I have inside and outside me and um, you know I just I guess trusted my eyes and stood on the passing lane and um, heard Hugo behind me saying he'd get last so I could just literally stand where I stood and um, you know bigger threw me the ball and that's that's it yeah so you, you took off yeah. um, did you just sort of I won't say pin the ears back and keep going and, yeah. and hope for the best I mean are, are we aware of what was happening around you at all um, that's what my old man used to say just pin the ears back and go for the corner and um, you know those first few steps you, you just try and accelerate and then have a quick look around and then um, you know I saw all the boys in the end goal and they were, they were celebrating I was like oh shit maybe no one is around me and then um, sure that's all that's all that happened yeah and it was a good test of your hamstring. 
Yeah, no, it's all good, mate. I'm ready to rumble. I have um, no qualms at the moment, and uh, the body's feeling good and ready to rumble again. Are you excited that this group of players mm-hmm. can be can be much better than last weekend? Yeah, uh, I think we can be, and I think there's a different beast around the corner, and it's just about being in it for longer periods of time, you know, uh, being able to help each other and coach each other through periods of toughness because that's ultimately what the other team's trying to do. They're trying to put you under pressure and pin you in the back of rucks and, um, you know, clean deep around corners and make you work a little bit harder. And, um, look, this French side, we fully understand the individual athletes that they have, the physicality that they're going to bring and the mindset of trying to beat us up up front. So, look, we uh, we know what's coming. Now it's just trying to stop it. <laughs> They're a different beast, aren't they? I mean, mm-hmm. even if you make a small mistake, they can punish you yeah. uh, very, very severely. Mm-hmm. You've got probably a 9 and 10 combo, which is uh, very, very exciting. That damn 9 of theirs is very, very good. Uh, the 10 is also very, very good. Then you've got Fiku at 12 and... No on one wing and uh, Jalabert on the bench. You got Ramos at 15, and um, that's only the back line we're <laughs> talking about. So uh, we we know the individual uh, qualities that they do have, and collectively when they get the ball rolling, it's very very tough. So um, you know we'll come with a, a plan to try and stop that. And I think if we get across our uh, cross our T's and dot our I's, I think we can be in for one heck of a battle. James Lowe there speaking to Michael Corcoran a little bit earlier on. Cross the T's and dot the I's in a hell of a battle. Sounds good. Yeah, in fairness, James Lowe is usually one of the, the best players you can interview within the Irish squad because he's just so different. But like, how well did he do to, to come back mm-hmm. and just slot straight back in? Like He'd been in New Zealand for family reasons for the last few weeks and came back and didn't really miss a beat. And you know His try was obviously brilliant, but I, I don't know if you noticed, I really enjoyed... Um, Keith Earls was running the water and so he was on the sideline as James Lowe if you watch it you'll see him on the replay and you can just see Keith Earls absolutely <laughs> screaming him on with John Fogarty scrum coach next to him like, it's like Ruby when he's screaming on a horse I've seen him <laughs> yeah. do that yeah <laughs> yeah um, on the telly on ITV when, it's the odd time that I watch it <laughs> they do that uh, Ruby cam and you're oh, yeah. desperate isn't it <laughs> that's what you get now for asking me what was yeah no, I was just maybe a little insight into the you know, the the team as well, the close bond. I mean, that's a guy, like James Lowe is playing ahead of Keith Earls, but you could see him mm, roaring on. There's no good, sense yeah. of dance. So, yeah, it was interesting. Keen, were you impressed with Conor Murray's game at the weekend? They come back in after being dropped, dropped out of Munster, and they played the way he did. Yeah, I was really impressed. Well, I wasn't surprised um, at all, to be honest, Ruby. Um, I don't know, like, Conor Murray has just become this kind of figure where like it's just so easy for people to criticise him and like it is his kind of downfall has been greatly I think exaggerated mm. um, he is not the same player he was but like he's had a couple of injuries like is anyone the same player what is he now 33 um, but he came back in and like like that Ireland start in the first 20 minutes half an hour like was reminiscent of the third test in New Zealand it doesn't get much better than that and Conor Murray was central to that no one was thinking at that first half an hour oh, Ireland are really missing James at Gibson Park here and that was I think a testament to Conor Murray obviously that the pack like providing the quick ball um, so yeah like I was really impressed I, I don't think um, 
there's much of a debate even going into this weekend in terms of who will start at scrum half whereas you know last week if you'd known that Jameson Gibson Park would have been out I think all week people would have been debating oh should Craig Casey start I thought Craig Casey did, did well off the bench he added a bit of tempo as well played his role in the, the bonus point try but I think Conor Murray offers you a lot in terms of defensive solidity and against France and against DuPont I think that's going to be uh, really really important so um, I thought he did well Ruby but not surprised at all uh, just one other question, um, Keen. You We saw the under-20s do really well mm. on Friday night. You've been watching a lot of schools rugby. Is the future looking bright from below the top? Yeah, well, you consider that the, the Ireland under-20s won the Grand Slam last year. And like I think there's only five or six players maybe back from this year. So there's a huge turnover mm. in terms of talking about defending a Grand Slam. But this Ireland under-20s team, for anyone for anyone who doesn't watch the Ireland-20s, you really should on a Friday night. It's brilliant, brilliant rugby, great entertainment. But this Ireland under-20s team is the biggest pack they've had in years, which is a real departure from underage Irish rugby. Big, big boys. You had a guy... Um, Owen Gle- or Gleeson, yeah, Brian Gleeson, sorry, got man the match. Like he's 19 underage again next year from Tipperary. Uh, played gaff or tip as well. Like oh, he right. is one to watch out for. You've ruined Quinn, who was the youngest Munster player. A couple of tip lads, so is it? Yeah, yeah, so it's really, it's really, really promising. Um, you've got Sam Prendergast, Keen Prendergast's younger brother, who is in the Sunny Leinster. Bill was tweeting about yes, him. Yes, like he was exceptional. Like I'm very wary of kind of building up. Um, young Irish out halves because we've seen how you know how that goes but this guy Sam Prendergast has been spoken about for the last couple mm-hmm. of years he was coming through Newbridge College and the underage setup so um, he's worth, worth watching out for as well so yeah like the start was really impressive against Wales the skill level on show was outstanding and like I said a big pack actually um, Joe McCarthy's younger brother is playing as well in the front row uh, Tidehead Prop who's another one who's highly rated won the Senior Cup at Blackrock last year so there's lots of guys in that team I think who we're going to be seeing playing in the senior team in the next few years future is definitely bright Right. well that sounds great uh, Keen Tracy thank you so much for coming into studio we're going to take a very quick break but stay with us we have football to come Game On on 2FM Welcome back now Mark Langdon of the Racing Post joins us on the line we're going to talk all things football particularly Manchester City but Mark before we get to that um, I am going to throw something at you as I often do and it's usually about someone's brother or son I saw today that Ronaldinho's son Joe Mendes has signed for Barcelona so he's 17 following in his dad's uh, legendary footsteps what's he like? Yeah not much hype um, around him um, at, at the moment which I mean, you could say it's a good thing because we, we did speak, didn't we, about uh, Kylian Mbappe's brother and there there is um, a lot of hype um, around him. So it will be interesting um, to see how, how he gets on. I mean, sort of my, my, my gut feeling is that if there's not much hype once they're 17, mm, um, yeah, it, it may be a bit of a shot in the dark really from Barcelona that, you know, you, you may as well take a chance just in case, but certainly wouldn't be sort of as highly regarded um, as, as the younger uh, Mbappe, I think it's fair to say. So I'd probably, I'd probably be guessing at this stage that, you know, he's not going to have anything like the career that Ronaldinho had. Hopefully I'm wrong um, because Ronaldinho was an absolute joy, particularly for um, a, a short period at Barcelona when he was probably the, the best player in the world for, for a while. But um, yeah, it, it, it's 
it's been a bit quiet about his brother. I mean, the first I knew about it was this week they even had one. So um, in terms of, you know, that the, the was sort of playing um, at that kind of level. So I, I, I'm not sure that he's going to um, make as big an impression as his brother. Who knows, but politics have taken over football yet again and Manchester City have been charged with breaking financial fair play rules around 100 times over a nine-year period. 100 times, imagine that. <laughs> Which started in 2009 and goes all the way to 2018. Mark, I tried to read this today. Is there any chance you can briefly synopsize what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, I, I've, <laughs> I'll try. Um, I mean, so, I mean, first of all, uh, Manchester City are accused... Um, I suppose, to keep it simple, of um, making sort of their sponsorship deals, you know, unrealistic and, um, you know, receiving more money than they should do for those sponsorship deals. Um, and therefore, that looks very good on their, their books. Um, and then similarly, when it comes to um, sort of paying off managers, which doesn't look so good on your books, they're accused um, of of using sort of subsidiary companies to do that. Um, and so uh, for financial fair play, it, everything looks great, um, as, as well, or sort of certainly good as far as City have, have been going. And, you know, this has been going on, been rumbling on for a long, long time because, you know, UEFA... If you remember, it, it was it wasn't that long ago that they kicked them out of, of the Champions League, and and City went to um, Cass and, and managed to get themselves back into um, in, in, into Europe's Premier Club competition. Albeit there were some sanctions over um, the amount of players they could register in a squad, which um, you know in terms of a punishment was a pretty um, small one. Uh, the difference with the, the Premier League and, and UEFA, or one of the differences anyway, is that um, UEFA were unable to go back a certain period of time, uh, whereas there isn't that um, sort of rule in place for the Premier League. So they are able to, um, you know, really go into these, um, you know, historic claims. And, you know, it's been rumbling on, like I say, for a long, long time um, Trying, it was you know a good few years ago that the Spiegel in Germany, the newspaper, had sort of started these claims. Um, UEFA followed them, uh, were unable, I suppose, to get the punishment that they wanted to see for Manchester City. And now um, the Premier League uh, go, go go next. And I think it's very really uh, it's quite apt that Manchester City have just appointed a lawyer called Lord Panic um, to look after their case for them. Mark, this will be heard in front of an investigative investigation committee which will be headed by a King's Council. So it's not a court of law. So will this be ruled on the bounds of probability or does it have to be proven beyond reasonable doubt? Yeah, I, I think that you've, you've always got more chance of being um, able to... Um, so, you, know, it, you, you don't need... Um, you know, as much as what you would in, in a court of law. I think that that um, it is clear. But I think also, you know, Manchester City um, are going to employ the, the best lawyers um, and, you know, really fight this hard, as you would expect them to. I think where it could come down to, though, is that the range of punishments are, you know, uh, there's big levels between the range of punishments that, that 
that City could be handed down. Um, you know, a, a fine, um, for instance, could be uh, one if they were found guilty. Of course, the um, sort of maximum penalty, I suppose, really would be relegation out of the um, out of the Premier League. So I think you probably have to just wait for the, for the case to be heard, and then it might come down to the severity um, of, sort of what they're able to prove, if they're able to prove anything, um, that, as to what that punishment would be. I mean, you know, relegation would be astonishing, really, um, for for a club like Manchester City. Of course, something like a fine, um, if they were found guilty, um, you know, is something that, while their reputation might be tarnished, you know, is the kind of thing that really wouldn't hurt them um, too much if they were were found guilty of, of these charges. So, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, well, I mean, obviously, first of all, we, we don't know if they they are um, guilty, and you know, Manchester City are, are going to fight um, as hard as they can. If they, I mean, I, my sort of, um, sort of gut feeling on this is always to believe it will be on the lower end of the scale because it usually is. Um, it's like I say, I've, I think for any for Manchester City to be relegated out of the Premier League, and I know there's been some Premier League teams that have been sort of pushing for it if they are found guilty. Um, that would be quite some step. I mean, you may remember um, many years ago, I think it was 1995, um, 94, around about that time, Tottenham were, were dot points and kicked out of the um, FA Cup and they managed to get back into the FA Cup and win those points back on appeal. So um, it... <laughs> Even even if there was a you know a, a harsher punishment, I'm sure again that City would would fight it. And my sort of gut feeling is that that these things always tend to end up on on the lower end of of um, of kind of the, the the scale, I suppose. Half a dozen points. United go seconds. <laughs> well, I mean, th- th- that happen? would be the other thing, Ruby, is that you know, th- it's probably going to take some time. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying it will be in two years' time, but you know, whether they can, wh- whether it can be done before this season is out, I- I'm not so sure. So, um, you know, I know that some Arsenal fans already um, <laughs> sort of cheering it um, on. I mean, I-, I think you'd have to wait and see to whether it would even be um, for this season. The other, the-, the-, the other interesting thing, of course, is that. You know, really, the, the Premier League is in such a strong position at the moment in terms of the whole of European football, and European football is is effectively world football, really, for, from a club point of view. Um, would they, would the Premier League be harming themselves if Manchester City were sort of kicked out? Um, you know, that 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 might be something for everybody in English football to consider because um, I, I mean, th- there's no doubt that if if you know, if the worst happened from a Manchester City point of view, it would, it, it, it would, I think, be, be a big blow to English football as well. And in, 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 you know, I know rival fans will be, um, you know, would, would, would be demanding it at the moment. But I do think that there is, um, you know, an interesting sort of side angle there as to whether the Premier League um, ultimately would be better off with Manchester City in it um, from a sort of world domination point of view in terms of TV rights and stuff like that. They most certainly would, but Mark, obviously, tomorrow night in Manchester, Leeds will travel without a manager. Any idea who's going to take over? Yeah, I, I mean, the, you know, they've said, haven't they, Leeds, um, or, or certainly been briefing that, um, you know, they are looking currently sort of in terms of their shortlist, 
Um, the reason it's dragging on slightly is because that um, those managers are in jobs um, and so they're, they're seeing what they can do. I think most people have assumed, therefore, uh, that it's Iriola, who is at Rayo Vicano, and Carlos Carbaran, who is at West Brom and was um, formerly Marcelo Bielsa's um, assistant at, at Leeds United. So... I, I think that that would be right sort of to, to work on that um, synopsis for now, that those are probably the two favourites. But as it's been said, you know, getting those managers out of clubs um, is quite difficult during the season. Uh, Corberan's done very well at West Brom. You know, he might feel like he's got a good chance to get them back up to the Premier League. You also wonder from that point of view, do you actually want to step into Bielsa's shoes? You know, he's still such a loved figure um, that you, you you are asking for trouble, I think, in some respects by going there because you're just going to be compared to Bielsa. Iriola is somebody that's done, you know, amazing work at Rio Vicano, a, a small club from the outskirts of, of Madrid. They're sort of, you know, fighting for European qualification at the moment. The Premier League's a big draw, but... Um, you, you you wonder whether he'd want to finish that job that he started there. So I think Leeds will start with those two names and then sort of work on from there. Pochettino was linked. Um, you know, he's a former sort of disciple, really, of Marcello Bielsa. I don't feel like he'd want to go that far down the Premier League just yet. Um, he's stopped probably still high enough to wait for something um, a little bit more attractive. So um, we have to wait and see how... how the, that they get on with their search in terms of those two managers. Um, other names that have been linked include somebody like Ralph Harsenhut or at Southampton, who of course, is out of work, plays that high-energy pressing game um, that I think Leeds sort of want to use with the young players they they brought in. So they might look at somebody like that if the um, first options um, you know fall through. Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Mark Langdon, thanks so much for taking our call. We're going to take a quick break. Game on on 2FM. Welcome back, Greg Allen has joined us in the studio to talk all things golf. Greg, I think we need to start with uh, what is happening with Liv. So there's an arbitration arbitration hearing to determine the futures of Liv golf players on the European Tour. It began on Monday at the Sports Resolution Arbitration and Media Centre in London. How significant is this? Well, it's very significant. I don't want people to switch off thinking this is boring. In actual <laughs> fact, it, while it sounds like it's boring, it's got huge amounts of uh, potential in terms of changing the landscape of golf and how players move from one tour to the other. Effectively, this all arose from uh, the start of the Live series last June when they held an event in Hertfordshire on June the 9th. As a result of that, uh, the DP World Tour banned the players who were also members of the DP World Tour who played in that event because they hadn't been given a release to play in that event. Uh, as a result of that, there are now 13 of those players making this appeal uh, to be reinstated, so to speak. But in the scenario in which they have already appealed, they've been allowed back on the tour pending this hearing. So. What this will do effectively is determine whether those 13 live players, um, they include incidentally the likes of Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter and uh, Gray McDowell, whether they can play on the DP World Tour uh, basically indefinitely and uh, without any restriction. And that obviously means as well that there is a huge amount riding on this for the tour insofar as their opposition to the live tour will be negated completely uh, if they allow all the live players to play as they wish on the European Tour or the DP World Tour and obviously be allowed to play in the live events. It's 
as far as the DP World Tour probably feels, is like the enemy within. And mm -hmm. uh, so this will be held over five days, started yesterday, so it'll conclu conclude on Friday. It's not a court case, it's a hearing. There are three King's Councils um, and they will decide basically on the future of players being able to move from one tour to the other. Now, the Live uh, Tour... I think it got a very strong case because a lot of European Tour, DP World Tour players play on the PGA Tour freely. Um, so the DP World Tour have to be allowed, as far as they're concerned, to be able to say, we have membership rules. This clause about you know not being allowed to play on another tour if you don't get a release is part of our rules and you signed up for these rules. So it's kind of got the feeling of a Bosman ruling about it. If anybody knows mm -hmm. what the Bosman ruling from 1995 meant, it meant the free movement of players, soccer players all through Europe. And this has the same sort of vibe about it. So, Greg, the PGA Tour has suspended its members who have participated in live tour events. The DP World Tour are trying to. But in the meantime, Patrick Reed, Abraham Anser, Taylor Gooch have played on the DP World Tour. If the DP lose, is there a chance Cameron Smith, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepra, etc., could follow them? Well, this is the thing that uh, there, there are people saying it's win-win for the DP World Tour, although I don't think the DP World Tour see it that way. But just say they lose this case and there is a free movement of players uh, th from the Live Tour, Live Series onto the DP World Tour without restriction. And they are currently banned from playing on the PGA Tour. And that won't change this year because there's an antitrust, anti-competition. It's really uh, sort of antitrust law in, in America is anti-competition. That hearing is not until next January. So for the whole of 2023, if this hearing goes in favour of the live players then you could find European Tour DP World Tour events with stellar names from the live tour playing on in events that wouldn't normally have a field of that strength uh, and a lot of those players will need points to get into major mm -hmm. golf championships maybe even insert themselves into the into the Ryder Cup reckoning so there is a sort of a scenario where if the DP World Tour lose this events that the DP World Tour stage will benefit from it but I don't think the DP World Tour want to lose this, even if it will benefit their events. It's a very interesting mm. week ahead. OK, Greg, uh, thank you for bringing us up to speed on that. Uh, Ruby, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, as always, for being with us. Betta De Silva is up next. RTE 2FM.